0: Blog Talk Radio. time to get in the game and
1: good morning and welcome once again to American tennis this is coach Chuck Creasy and it's another week of American tennis and every week I say pretty much the same thing as we go through this intro is that on, we got a job to do and we want to do it here in America and we want it done as much as we can uh you know, with our American kids, and let's let's uh, let's get it rolling again here. And there's, for the last eight years, we've been on the the UR Tennis Network, and now the Yellow Ball Network. But this American Tennis Program has been going on, and we've always tried to bring you guests that would help, uh, gosh, give you the wisdom that you're not going to hear much from anymore, but to give you a, a lot of different uh, information and material that will really help you sort of wade through what's going on. But also if you're a youngster or a coach or a parent who is uh, the parent of a, a young player coming up, it will give you some ideas about, you know, what's out there and uh, how you go about it. There, There's really no shortcuts. It's a uh, meat and potatoes approach. There's spice all over the place now, but the, the meat and potatoes are still how it gets done. Fundamentals, fundamentals, fundamentals. And, uh, I'm leading in this way because today because our guest, uh, Coach J. W. Eisenhower, I have been wanting to have him on the program for for a long time now, and I was prompted about uh, oh gosh, ten days ago, uh, um, J. P. Weber I was speaking to him, and he said, "Have you had Coach Eisenhower on there? No I said, "I've tried before. If I can get him, I'm going to sure try." And uh, it was prompted again. I've got to say this by you know the passing of Dennis Ralston um, this last week. We had Dennis on the program a couple times many years ago, eight years ago when we first started the program, and then uh, about two or three years ago. But the wisdom that he gave was was his was tremendous. But dag gone, what a a great great competitor, great man. What a heart and the guy, the guy was a competitor, and uh, I remember as a young young uh, kid myself hitting on the backboard. Uh, I admired the guy because he would speak out. He was a competitor, and there was fire in that tank. But uh, J.P. Weber told me, you've got to call Coach Eisenhower. (laughs) He said, all you guys are getting older, and we've got to get you on record. And uh, Coach Eisenhower is definitely one of the best. And I'm going to get him on here so I can uh, let him – listen and sort of jump in when I give, give some of the accolades about what he has done. And I've got you on the air there now. I think uh, JW, how are you, man?
2: Oh, uh, pretty good, Chuck. Uh, yeah. yeah. And let me say too about Dennis. I, I would like to just reiterate what you said. He, uh, was probably one of the first coaches that, uh, made pro coaching high profile when he was coaching Everett and, uh, And I don't know if you know or not, but he later went on to coach. uh, I went and talked to him, and uh, he took over coaching John Sadry on the Pro Tour and was with him for four or five years there uh, during John's uh, best time. So uh, rest in peace, Dennis, and you'll be missed by a lot of people.
1: Uh, Absolutely. You know, and back when I was a young whippersnapper of a coach and going through a real hard time, I remember him cornering me over I think we're in Montgomery, Alabama and he said Chuck, Chuck, you're going a mile a minute here and you're doing a lot of good things but tell me what your relationship with God is right now and he said he said talk to me about where you are you know with your family and what you're climbing this mountain pretty quick what are you taking care of this you know the other and 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 you know and he didn't know me hardly JW from from anything, I, you know, we were trying to build a program at Clemson and everything. And and uh, he, he cornered me sort of, and I, my golly, I used to make believe I was him when I was 15 years old, hitting on the backboard at the Garfield Park in Indianapolis, Indiana. City Parks guy, hitting on the backboard. I used to say, I'm Dennis Ralston playing at, at Wimbledon here and would, would visualize that. but But that was much but J.P. Weber I, I told him to try to get on and call in today if you could just to say hi but um, you know that's that's the truth the wisdom I, the way I've written this up on a um, little blurb that goes out uh, J.W. And, and I don't want you to uh, think that I'm embellishing anything but I said J.W. Eisenhower is one of the most respected coaches in the USA he's coached players from the beginning Beginner to world class for over 50 years, 53 years, I believe. His American grassroots coaching became legendary in the 70s when many of his students rose to world class levels. His time test of wisdom and insights are shared today on American tennis. And uh, let me go through the bio here real quick, and I'll go through it. You, you know, the the uh, window dressing stuff's okay, but, you know, <laughs> hey, J.W., you're here. Everybody's a hero on Facebook, right? On Facebook. <laughs> that, <laughs> we get
2: a, we get I mean, a, we we get a lot better the longer it's been since we are <laughs> <we're> doing anything. <laughs> well, it used to be that you
1: really <laughs> had to have a platform, you had to accomplish something. You know, you and it had to be something notable. You know, there there were special, special moments in your life, and I'm going to review a couple of memories. But I, I can remember you guys winning the championship point at North Carolina in 1978 to win the ACC title for the first time for NC State, but upset North Carolina had won 20 out of 21 title, 22 out of 23 titles and i believe andy andrews was on that court
2: is that correct that
1: middle court that down below That's court correct. is that correct now okay, number 3 no, doubles he and he and scott
2: he and scott dillon
1: he, he and scott dillon and he hit the yeah. winning but andy poached i think and knocked off the winning poach didn't he yes yep 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 that now, was now, a, i was standing that was with a big, you, uh, and you... <laughs> it was a big deal. That was big and, and, for but
2: our, big for our program. No yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, but no, I but you I'm opposing know, co- go ahead. Um, you know, it was big for us because you know, for the first 10 years I coached at NC State, we didn't win an ACC match. So we, we did have like, scholarships. I don't know. Yeah. Um yes, and then um well, it, it was probably it was the second year after we gave our first scholarship that uh, we we uh, yeah we won that yes third year yeah but we gave the first scholarship.
1: The point I'm making is that I'm an opposing coach and I'm standing, there, but I remember that that's been 40 dag gone. That's been what 42, 43 years ago, and I remember that moment. All right. But I remember so many moments, and you were a great mentor. But I want to go into your bio here, your Hall of Fame member, and um, you know, golly, the best thing I saw is that you have tutored over a hundred college, a hundred, hundred kids, a hundred kids that you've taught have gotten to go to college. This American kids, local kids, North Carolina kids, got to go to college, right? And yeah. um, and
2: and well, also, I do. I do want to. I do want to correct that. Actually, it's over 300. <laughs> okay. All right. hey, sorry, sorry. I was
1: reading that bio. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You better you better get that out on Facebook. Or fa- sorry, sorry, Facebook. So they'll correct it. But it's it's just amazing how things are so embellished and everything now, and everybody's a hero. So what happens when you champion the weak is you end up weakening the real champions. But I wanted to make, make these points. Over 300 of your kids – Played college tennis. Now, you went to App State and then you ended up coaching at NC State 68 to 81. And you, of course, um, ha- it wasn't so much of you taking a program that had no scholarships, ended up having players come through. Of course, he had the Andrews, but the, the great John Sadry, I want you to be able to talk about him in detail here in a second after I get through this stuff I wrote down here, but I, um, but so many of this. Now, as a young, and this is what I'm going to say, as a young coach, I was probably listening to you more than anybody else in the world because um, I met you for the first time in 1971 when I came over to Tennessee Tech. We played NC State, but then in 72 or early 73, you brought Andy Andrews up as a young 14-year-old, I think, Playing a big tournament at Port Washington Tennis Academy, and I, I noticed that, and I re, had remembered you. But as a young coach, I watched not so much what you did in the championship you won, championships that you won, but how you did them. And very much, I was a blue-collar kid growing up, and uh, at the parks. But I watched you take all of these folks. Folks, listen to this. Wouldn't this be great now? All of these North Carolina kids that other schools, but a lot of the California schools, Texas, Florida schools, we're not looking at, but you took these boys named the Dillon boys, a Matt boy named Matt McDonald, and, and the Andy Andrews, and the John Sadries, and you groomed these young men into one of the top teams in the United States, and into a top ten team, and, of course, um, yeah, but I it, I wanted to make that point: is that it wasn't what you did, it's how you did it. And uh, why, and this is the last thing I'm saying, and then we're going to start asking him questions, folks. But you got to know this, JW. J. I owe you a big, big apology on the air. at we went down to Athens, Georgia About 10 years ago or 15 years ago I forget and you were there in the audience And Paul Scarpa and myself And Ron Smart I think we're getting inducted Into that thing down there And I had it on my list And I was trying to remember I wanted to say Who should be getting in here Too is, is one of the mentors Of all three of us The guy named Ron Smart uh, Coached at South Carolina then Rice Was I think he was he was in some of your PE classes and things back at App State. You know, you knew him from back then, and then the Paul Scarp, and then of course
2: myself. So, that being said, well, folks, it's, with Ron, it's, it's great. Ron Smar, great Ron to have Smar you. we Ron Smarr, we actually played on the Appalachian team together. Okay, um, he was a, he was a teammate of mine. That's how um, Ron and I started. You know, back when I was a junior in college. Okay. As, as teammates at App, App State
1: Well you, you definitely have Mentored hundreds of people And you are, you're a grand and great teacher But I want to talk, ask you about Those early days how did you take NC State when you started out First of all you were a co-chair From 68 and it took you About four or five years to get a role And uh, how What what was your approach? What did you do in those early days? When did you figure out and just go look? I'm getting these North Carolina kids and just training them. Could you sort of go through that story and talk about that?
2: Well, um, you know, we had no scholarships. Uh, That was a a choice of our athletic director. He didn't scholarship the tennis, and uh, so basically the the. Young men that I could get to come to NC State were basically North Carolina kids that wanted to uh, major in uh, engineering or uh, you know technical studies because that's what NC State was famous for. So I was out trying to watch these uh, young people play in tournaments and trying to find the ones I thought were excited enough to to want to practice. Um, every day and play with, and you know, they weren't getting any money to do it. They were just walk ons. And so we had some fine kids that played for 10 years, uh, but we realistically didn't have much of a chance to win an ACC match, but we won. And so that was, was going to be eight losses a year right there, eight or nine, uh, play in the ACC. And then, um, and we wound up winning probably half our matches for most of the time, um, with going to be down 8-0 at the start, if you know what I mean. So I was I continued to try to, you know, find people that were really interested in uh, playing. And as as we got a reputation for doing better, then I was able to uh, entice a man from Chattanooga named Thorny Strang who grew up with uh, uh, Roscoe Tanner and uh, the guys from Chattanooga. And uh, he came, and we had a couple of boys from North Carolina and then the, the Merritt boys from Lexington, which was a real hotbed. I heard I heard you talking with Gary Plock the other day about there being hotbeds of tennis. I think they may have set the national record for high school matches one in a row, uh, I think it's Le- been broken Lexington, since, but Lexington, North Carolina. Lex- yeah, Lexington, North Carolina. Yes, and um, um, they, you know, those guys on the team were th- were the team that precursed when we finally were able to get uh, scholarships. Uh, our athletic director gave us, you know, told me I could I could have two, since we were doing better. I think he saw we were doing better, so. he he gave me a chance to have two scholarships. And at the time, we had one of the, a guy who, um, I don't know if many people know it or not, but when he was in the 16 and unders in North Carolina, he was number 30. And two years later, he was number one or number two in the South. And that was John Sadrick. And I'd watched him play all his, from the time he started playing tennis that, you know, he only played tennis beginning at like 13 years old, 13 to 14 years old. And then within three years, he and another buddy of his named Scott Dillon were working out in Charlotte every single day, rain or shine, sleet or snow. They were riding their bike to the club. club, And, and I knew this from being around. And when I got the scholarships, then John was the first one I went after. And, um, and luckily, he uh, he decided to come to NC State. He he was going to walk on at uh, Trinity University, I think. And um, finally, I, I got him to take the scholarship. And um, I also traveled to New Jersey and picked up a, a young name, a man named Bill Sipke, who, uh, by Bill. the way, and this is a th- – yeah, Bill was a was good player. And, but, you know, he was a, a raw player coming out, just like John was. Uh, uh, he He had six children in his family, and all six of these children wound up going to college and playing tennis at a university and never took lessons. They were just playing in public parks and playing for the high school and were so dedicated to what what they, the type of kids that were dedicated that uh, they all wound up getting scholarships and I went up and watched how Bill acted around his teammates and uh, when they went out to eat and stuff like that during the state championships and uh, uh, I had had mr. Robinson the uh, I forget his first name but David Robinson played for Duke you remember David
1: yeah I do yeah um,
2: um, David David's father told me he said David I recruited David. And David, he said that David, I think he's going to go to Duke. But I want to recommend a young man to you that if I had to walk down a dark alley, then he would be somebody I'd want by my side. So I went up and watched him and offered him a scholarship. And and he came to NC State also. And uh, he and John came in as as my first scholarships. And uh, John went on to be... I think 10 or 11 in the in the world for, as Don likes to say, 10 for about 36 hours, and uh, he was like a 10, 11, 12 for for several years. And uh, Bill went on to win um, a couple of AT, ATP championships with his brother Tom. So uh, these were these were good athletes, but as I said, they were raw, and. Um, uh as a, as for how raw they were, John uh, was sixty five in the country coming out of the juniors and uh that's probably the reason that he didn't didn't get many scholarships offers and stuff, but people didn't know him the way I did and how dedicated he was and uh uh i mean i I can't explain to you how much he hated to lose and uh how much he was willing to do to not have that losing feeling and well let's so, go, let's go there
1: a little bit let's go there a little bit <clears throat> just if you could elaborate on that his dedication some of your stories about you know how much he hated losing and thing that's what kids and parents
2: need to hear about go ahead well probably the the person who motivated him probably the most was his practice partner was Scott Dillon. I think he lost to Scott in the finals of a tournament in Salisbury, North Carolina, when they were about 13 years old. And so he (coughs) wanted to practice with Scott so he could find out what he did uh, to beat him. So they started practicing, and then that fostered a relationship that (coughs) – Earned them both a full scholarship to college, and excuse me, but and, uh excuse me, um, Scott's brother, Mark, also, I gave Mark a full scholarship too. He was state champion here in North Carolina and number two in the South, and and so when I when I formed that Charlotte connection, that was the thing that really pushed NC State over the top because these, these uh, young men were so dedicated. Uh, Sadry and Scott Dillon would get on. I mean, they were famous for having a, a suitcase, excuse me, a pillowcase full of tennis balls that they would tie to the handlebars of their bikes. And John had to ride about, two miles through the city to get to Old Providence Racket Club and Scott had to ride even further than that to get to the club and they did it seven days a week. If it rained they would go hit on the wet court or they'd hit on the backboard together or they would just volley. If it snowed they would sweep off a path cross court and try to hit it in the part that didn't have snow on it. I mean they were they were famous for that and this, and actually, there were people, there were kids in Charlotte that started getting suitcase, suit, uh, excuse me, not suitcase, pillowcases full of balls, and carrying them around with them to practice because they saw John and Scott really improving, and and uh, they started doing the same things. So, uh, as as from that beginning of. Being out there at practice and deciding they wanted to hit 500 forehand volleys in a row without missing, and then would go to the backhand and try to hit 500 more, and they wouldn't stop until they hit 500 volleys and 500 backhands uh, in a row, and uh, that kind of determination is what uh, you know what I what I latched onto and what I recruited basically in everyone that everyone that I recruited was someone that I felt was hated to lose and would do whatever practice they needed uh, as well as being able to do the schoolwork but would do whatever practice they needed uh, to not have that losing feeling and uh, so that's that's what I recruited uh, there was a determination to succeed or to be a success and I think uh, uh, all these guys, even the ones that didn't play pro tennis, uh, Matt McDonald and uh, Andy Andrews. Uh, well, Andy did play pro tennis a lot. Matt played uh, several years. Matt played for two or three years and then uh, went into business. And Mark Mark Dillon was all American. He he went into business, been very successful. And it goes on on and on down the down the line with the guys who played. Bill Sipke is a Indoor Tennis Center owner up in New Jersey. Uh, uh, he, he's he been very successful. So it's... Uh, and this is not just the ones who played tennis. I We talk about the ones who, you know, went on to su- success in tennis, to even playing for years, trying to make it on the tour, really successful people. But they went on to be really successful in their lives outside, you know, their tennis also. So... Um, well That's the work what, one
1: thing is I'm, carried I'm most over surprised. <laughs> yes yeah. and
2: i've I've had um, Andy Andrews in particular um has told me that the attitudes of the people that he ran into playing junior tennis that were good or bad carried over, and I think what he the words he what what he the percentage he used was one hundred percent in their business dealings. So I think tennis, to me, tennis is a sport that teaches you to depend upon yourself and to not be afraid of losing, but to know that you have to get out and do your due diligence so that the next time you have that situation come up, you don't lose again. And I think tennis is... A perfect, perfect sport for that for young people because nobody can do it for you. Nobody's mom or dad can buy it for them. They have to get out there and they have to, as Ben Hogan said, he dug his game out of the dirt. And, uh, and I think tennis has to be, if you want to, Use that analogy. It has to be dug out of the dirt too, with your own sweat and your own hitting 500 volleys in a row, or forehands and backhands, or as Peaches Barkowitz, I think at the time was, she was trying to hit 1500 forehands a day off a backboard without missing. Um, it was uh, that to me is the worth of tennis, is what it teaches to young people, and that that to me if if they do anything past what they learn from tennis, then more power to them. But uh, in all the people I taught, uh, I always tried to emphasize number one with the kids growing up was that they try to get good enough to play high school tennis because that's what people know you are in your community is is from how you. Play for your school against other other schools. Now people nowadays they say don't play high school tennis; it's a uh, it's worthless that kind of thing. Well, wrong. I you know I think wrong. they're I think they're very very yeah, absolutely short-sighted, wrong.
1: Absolutely wrong. Very yeah. short
2: sighted. And uh, then I think the ones who are better, I wanted them to be thinking trying to get to play college tennis. And then the ones that were really, really motivated, if they were good enough, uh, uh, I think they could think about going on and trying to, you know, make some money playing tennis. I never never did agree with people saying, well, I want to play, I want to turn pro tennis, I want to see what I can do. Well, I don't think you ought to turn pro to see what you can do. I think you ought to turn pro if you can make money at tennis. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Because that's what the, because it is, it is not, and I don't if anybody's watching and listening to me, tennis is not a fun endeavor at the pro level. It is, it is a business. And to take a child and want to keep talking with them about wanting to be a pro tennis player and, you're, and you poo-poo the value of high school tennis and playing at the college level and try to get to be a professional player, um, unless you're a John McEnroe, or a Tracy Austin, or a Jennifer Capriati, or Jim Courier, and these guys that proved that they could win on in playing in pro tournaments when they were teenagers, then I think there's really selling pros and parents and stuff that are selling their children on going straight out of out of being a teenager and those teenage years into having to deal with professional sports are really leading them down a path that I would say what do you think 99% of the ones who do it are failures well probably
1: not 9 but it's pretty close i'd say 98 or 99 well uh, yeah. and again again you have to be Think you have to do everything like a pro would do it long before you're a pro, like Sadri and Dylan. You said they loved it that much; they would hit 500 balls in a day, like their life depended on. that that motivation is something that's very special. You know, let me let me make a point. Your story about NC State would be very much like a, a movie Hoosiers or something about. Coming out of nowhere, in two or three years, you get these kids that are local kids, and it just happened to be a tremendous chemistry with the Dillons and with John Sadry and with Matt McDonald and with, of course, Andy, who you coached from the time he was young, and he was, uh, oh, what a a talent he was with the great fundamentals. But what I'd I'd like to know is what made Sadry – Okay, I, I'll leave. I'm going to lead in here. Want to know why Sadri was so super special, and then would talk about that march he made from the time he was about a sophomore in college, all the way to making the NCAA tournament, being a number one player, and big, to being the guy who pushed McEnroe seven six seven six five seven seven six. He never lost his serve in that match. I was sitting right behind that match. But then he he got the top ten in the world. Now, I wanted to bring this in there real quick. Many times on our our program here I've talked to the people about ability, opportunity, desire, or nature, nurture, self. It's your God-given ability plus opportunities that you have plus the desire of your heart. And all three of those are critical. So maybe I'm uh, framing that a little bit. But talk about him, the jump that he made from junior tennis in. Uh, being 70 in the country to come in and then playing in about his junior years when he broke out. So talk about that a little bit, if you could.
2: Well, um, as I mentioned, first of all, let me say, John's attitude, and I'm not – I mean, I'm singling him out because he's obviously the best player uh, results-wise that we had. Um he i re- I literally credit with him him with dragging four guys into pro tennis with him um, he He played doubles with Bill Sipke, uh his senior year in college. Uh, they drew McEnroe and Mays in the first round of the NCAA tournament, and by the way, they should have been seeded. They were fourteen and one. But our athlete director wouldn't wouldn't let us play a a national schedule. And so um, the one match that we lost, we defaulted because we had to get back to Raleigh to play Duke the next day. And we were playing South Carolina, and we defaulted our doubles because we we beat them 5-1 in singles. So we defaulted the doubles and got a a two-hour head start back to Raleigh. But that one match being defaulted probably cost them for being seated in the NCAA Tournament because uh, the, people that, the person that was on, our, on the committee for seating didn't, didn't really fight for John them the way he should have. I mean, they, they, people knew how good they were. It's just that, uh, you know, we just didn't have a record against uh, other people. But I'm going to let that go. But he did drag people in from 30 in North Carolina at number in the 16s. To number two in the South in the 18s, to winning the ACC singles championship as a junior and senior, and making All-American his junior year in, in the NCAA, losing to Chris Lewis from Southern Cal in the round of 16 to make the NCAA, to make NCAA All-American his junior year, and the next year. He draws Chris Lewis in the first round of the NCAA tournament, and he beats Chris one and zero. That was the that was the trajectory this young man followed all through his career.
0: Mm -hmm. If
2: something wasn't working for him, he would he would hit five hundred serves after practice. He would put two. Hand towels down in the corners of the service court, and he wouldn't quit until he knocked those hand towels completely out of the service court. Um, he put them right in the corner, the forehand side and the backhand side, and he wouldn't quit until he knocked knocked them out of the court. And he did. Then he would do the same thing on the ad side, and he wouldn't go home until he had done that. And sometimes he'd be hitting in the dark, but uh, he would go over there and see if he had knocked them out of the court, and then he'd go back over to the other side and finish them off. You know, I mean, this was uh, the self dedication. Plus, um, another thing that I felt when I when I I don't say hired, but I'd say when I hired these good athletes, and I was able to give them money, was that I felt like they needed to to be really strong. And so I made it a, an aim of ours that everybody on our team would be able to bench press 250 pounds, because I felt like People were weak from the waist up, and uh, they needed to strengthen the shoulders and overhead for the serve. Excuse me, shoulders and back, upper back and and arms for the for the overheads and serves, which I thought were so important in the game if you wanted to play an attacking game. And, uh, and so we we got everybody on a an early morning weightlifting program, and of course John, I mean you know he just took to that, and everybody else did too. Everybody was was really really enjoyed playing tennis. I mean, they really it was part of their. I don't mean it's in a bad way, but it was part of their self worth that uh, they were getting no. that they were getting better in tennis. And um, and so we'd had early morning um, weightlifting <clears throat> two days a week, and then on Saturday I left it up to them to go lift on their own. And of course, they had to write down what they did, so I knew if they were lifting. And then the other three days of the week, we three of the other four days, we worked out 6.30 in the morning with, with sprints and exercises and stuff for an hour to an hour and a half and finished up with a mile run on Wednesday morning for time indoors. And so we, we started getting everybody physically fit, and I think that helped a lot with John's, John's attitude because as, he start, as you start feeling stronger, and you put in all this time, then all the all the kids started, you know, they had so much invested that it wasn't, it, first of all, it wasn't in their nature to give in anyway because that's what I tried to recruit. But then when you make them physically stronger and they see themselves getting stronger and hitting aces and hitting overheads away for winners, and being able to take a high forehand or a high backhand and hit it through the court then they start feeling better about themselves and in and what they're trying to do and uh and so he he took he took this work ethic and also he took to the uh body strengthening and um uh and really uh, you know em- emphasizing his strengths And everybody else had their strength, different strengths. But John's strengths, I felt, I mean, he had great hands, great volleys, great overhead. So I felt like he should be trying to force the action. And so uh, that was my attitude with everybody on the team. I, I felt like when big points came up that they should feel like they wanted to force the action. And they needed to have the volleys and the overheads and the serves that serve that would get them started in the point correctly, um, uh, a, an understanding of how to approach the net and put pressure on the other person, um, and then to be able to finish with the high volleys and the overheads um, is where the strengths came in, and so we we uh, basically you know built the program around those fundamentals that we would try to be aggressive when, and John was you know. The best one. He was the one who did that the best. We had other people that their strength was, um, like Andy's strength was at the ba- you know, at the baseline uh, and getting a forehand in three quarter court, and then he could put anybody in trouble with a forehand from the court. So it was Mark Dillon. Scott Dillon was a David Ferrer type player who um, had a good overhead, had an adequate serve. Um, but was the kind of guy that you you would have to beat him to death with a stick, if you know what I mean. Uh, And so everybody had their their different strengths, but I wanted them to be able to feel like they could be aggressive or to be an aggressive-feeling person, (laughs) and I thought physical strength had a lot to do with that, and so that's what we built our program around. Right. Now, Today's tennis.
1: Go ahead, go ahead, Coach. Go ahead, finish your thought there.
2: I was I was going to say when John John went into after he beats Chris Lewis the first round in the NCAA tournament. He says he said Coach, I was really anxious to see how much better I'd gotten since last year, but uh, I think I'm going to be all right now. And so he goes he goes I think he loses a set to. Some people, but I think he beat he may he maybe lost a set to a couple of people, but I think he beat everybody like maybe two and one the other two sets. Um, I know he beat uh, he beat Eddie Edwards, who was a fine pro. I think he beat him in the quarters, and then he beat uh, Elliot Telcher, uh, who was also a fine pro for ten years or more, in the semifinals, and then in the finals he played John. And uh, really, Sadri was serving at you know, and you know, uh, we had the nine point tiebreakers back then. Yeah, Uh, Sadri was serving. was serving at three all in the first set tiebreaker with three serves to win the set, and he was serving at three all in the fourth set tiebreaker um, to win that fourth set. And he and he, like you say, he did break John's serve in the third, and that was the only service break in the match. And uh, he hit, I think he hit something like 28 aces uh, in the match. And the thing that I remember even more than that, he probably hit at least that many overheads in the parking lot too. Yeah,
0: balance more defense.
2: That he was, he was putting so much pressure on McEnroe on his serve that John did. John had to hold his serve, and the pressure finally got to him, and he broke him in the. He broke him in the third, and then I. Then I remember him being serving at three all in the fourth and I'm saying, you know, he may may win this thing. He wins his set. He's he's got a good chance to win this thing. And another thing that I don't think I don't think a lot of people realize was that the day that John Sadry played John McEnroe, McEnroe was ranked fifteenth in the world. Yeah, he had got he had got he had gotten to the semis he of Wimbledon. Went back to college. Yeah, he and got went semis to semis of Wimbledon and then went back to college. Right. How about that one? Yeah. Go ahead. Well, he didn't go. He didn't go back. He got to the semis of Wimbledon after high school.
0: Right. Then he went to and college. Then went to, as a freshman. Then
2: went to <laughs> And another thing that I want to say to people about John McEnroe is Dick Gould said he was probably the best team player he ever had. And I agree with that because in that week, uh, 10 days, he, they brought, brought Stanford in there, and John was playing number one. So he played everybody in the team tournament. What? What are 16 teams in the team tournament, correct? Yep, yep, there were 16. Wasn't there. that correct? Well, he played right. five number one guys and five number one doubles matches to get – before the individual tournament even started. And then he played all the way through the singles and all the way to the, I think they lost in the semis to Gary Plock and, and his partner. Am I correct in that? Yeah, yeah. Or did correct. they win the doubles too? I, uh, but anyway. No, Mac, they did Mac not. Gary, Mays, Plock
1: won, Gary Plock won. Yeah.
2: Well, McEnroe and Mays lost in the semis. So he he played 10 straight days singles and doubles. So he was playing his 16th or 17th match in 10 days and still found the courage and the desire to win against a guy that he never broke his serve. So more power to John McEnroe and it just proved what kind of fighter the guy really was. And also, you know, what kind of fighter John was because You know, theoretically, he had no chance, but I honestly think I had him convinced that, you know, beating Micah Rose probably, you know, it was probably worth a quarter of a million dollars to him in contracts and stuff if he could have beaten him and gotten his, uh, gotten a wild card into the U.S. Open. I think uh, he had already been contacted by uh, Larry Riggs about playing on pro circuit, you know, and, uh, and dropping out of college his spring semester his senior year, and uh, had been offered money to do that, and so I know it would have been worth a lot of money to him, and uh, I had I had him convinced that, and you know and he played played knowing that and of course the, all the pressure was on Mack and Rowe, but you know Sadri had the pressure knowing that, you know he was playing a guy that's fifteenth in the world and he would this would have been the thing that just put the cap on his his career really, um up up to that time, this would have been the the straw that you know, that put him yeah. over the top. So it it was an unbelievable Man. match of it was one of the best, match, best and, matches I've and, ever and seen. And let me say to everybody
1: out there, go to YouTube and you can get it, John Sadry versus John McEnroe, nineteen seventy nine, right? nineteen seventy nine NCAA championships. Uh, 78, seventy eight. 78. Seventy-eight, and
2: uh, everybody
1: yeah, you can match, you can get
2: that. Yeah. yeah, there's one sequence in there that uh, it it talks about him. You know, you know, beating everyone, and and everybody makes comments about that that they hadn't they had heard of him, but they didn't really know that he was that good. And then he comes out there and he just starts hitting ace after ace after ace, and all they're doing is walking back and forth. And so, right. um, it right. um, uh, so. Being able to sit, being able to sit there and watch that, watch that match was uh, an uh, unbelievable. We've got about ten to fifteen me. minutes
1: left here. I wanted to make a couple points about this, folks. If you're listening now, understand. Never went. He never went to a fancy academy. He never did all of the point chasing. Just hey, get points. What's his ranking? Hey, what's his UTR? What's this? What's that? He basically on his own with one of his buddies fell in love with tennis in Charlotte, North Carolina, and did the work. All right, parents, I always get people ask me, what academy should I go to? I don't want my kid to get behind. Oh, it's different now. No, it's not. It it is all comes down to that where that inner drive comes from, and it comes from somewhere down deep that nobody else can put in. And I don't want to go there with this program, but it's been proven. It's been proven that... 30 times somebody telling you to do something is not equal to one time of you telling yourself. I think it's 30 to 50 times somebody somebody else saying, hey, this would be good for you to do. So it comes down to how do you get this driving determination. With that, I want to go to the sleeping giants we have in USA Tennis. I want this to be educational and to uh, for people to understand the great story you just told, and what about the drive and the heart? I know for myself, watching that, that formed a lot of what I did in my entire career. I grew up in Indiana basketball stuff, but I, um, you know, and I had tough coaches. But the bottom line on the thing is, we were able to outwork people up until 1992 or three, and then they, instead of chasing us and being hard workers, we had all the Ivy League teams. You know, politic to politic dumb down, low, lower the bar. But I wanted to ask you this. Here are the sleeping giants. I've, I addressed the sleeping giants in USA Tennis. We're trying to make American, American tennis great again. Let's make American tennis great again. But, J.W., here are the ones, and then I would like, love for you if you could comment on each one of them. Number one is high school tennis. Number two, small-town tennis, USA. Okay, first of all, high school tennis, we have so much opportunity there with facilities and with schools and with rivalries and all that thing. Tim Wilkinson said kids play for rivalries and tournaments of heritage. They do not play for points. High school tennis, small-town tennis, over 73% of our professional athletes come from towns, less than 50,000 people, J.P. Or, excuse me, uh, J.W., um, but the point being is that in our small towns we are not grooming people are going inner city, USTA and things are going inner city, but that's not where you get the champions. Intercity kids want to fit in and stay at stay in. Small town kids want to stand out and get out, so they usually play football, basketball, and baseball. Third sleeping giant, there's nothing for our kids twenty two to thirty five years old. It's sort of like people that commit, they go off the cliff with their tennis. There's nothing for them. Number four, the sleeping giant is old people again. Everybody's going to this pickleball. It's stupid, and there's reasons why they're going to pickleball. It's because of the equipment change and the symmetry of the game has been screwed up. But the other thing, the last thing is grassroots bottom-up belief. In other words, right now, we're being dictated from a national office about USTA tennis, from a national office. They're telling us how to run tournaments. They're going to all national levels, one through seven. It's going to be great for all the Barney Fives in the back room with computers where they can, and pardon me for saying that, if you're one of those computer guys, but the bottom line, we don't, do not need bean counters in the back room dictating, we're going to have this system and count points for our, Tennis players are kids to be inspired. They don't get inspired by points. Of course, college tennis leads to be that's a great great sleeping giant. So talk to me real quick. We'll go through each one of those about 2 minutes. High school tennis. What are your thoughts on high school tennis? JJW.
2: Well, um I think I already mentioned it. My my thoughts are that a child I I, I don't know I don't know any sport. If you're really good in high school that you get your face in the local newspaper, face picture of you, except high school tennis, any more than high school tennis. If uh, right. if if you're you know, I think. But but the main thing is that the kids that you're in school with and have been in school with for three and four years, how you play against. I'm say let's hear in Gastonia, if you're playing for Ashbrook High School, and you play against Forestview High School. Mm-hmm. You beat Forest View. Your tennis team beats Forest View. That's what your students' friends know. They don't know right. when you went down to Georgia and played some guy that's, like that's right. five in the south and beat that guy. They don't know that. They don't know how hard that that's is right. or anything. But all they know is you beat Hus, and your team beat right. Huss for four years in a row. They know, they know their friends uh, beat their rivals. And I wanted to one other thing. The thing that drove these guys back in the times when we were coaching was rivals, we, rivalries with other people. What I know Sadri wanted to kick Tracy DeLat's butt. Okay? They're growing <laughs> up. He's watching these guys play. that That's what drove these guys through the years was getting a chance to play Someone rivalry. that had beaten them before or somebody that, no, individual rivalries are so much more important than your points unless you're playing for money, unless you're good. a pro. And even as a pro, mm-hmm. you beat these individual, right? These individual, you think these guys like, Nadal and everybody don't have in, want to beat these individuals, regardless of the ranking. They want to beat these people. You want to beat the person that you really that beat you before, or so that's what drives you, and not that's some freaking bunch of points that you that can point. earn that's by well going to another it. state, going to yeah. another state and playing a weaker tournament. Yeah. So
1: you parents, know, parents. You know, parents Listen to that, parents, what he's saying here rivalries and tournaments of heritage. And you tournament directors and parents out there, these abbreviated tennis matches don't, don't really tell you who the better player is. You play no ad tennis or a 10 point tiebreaker with a third set, and your youngster never gets to play a third set in high school and learn that's where all the learning takes place. That is a travesty. All right, tall, small town tennis USA, small town tennis. I'll tell you an idea I had but but go ahead, don't you think we're missing the boat
2: there with not promoting
1: tennis in our small towns
2: well i I think first of all, and this is i mean i don't know we we you you said something about building from the bottom up and and uh, uh the u s t a has taken over dominating you know what's good and what's bad and what you should do to get to another level and all this kind of stuff I think. Uh, the parents don't have any choice what their chid, kids can do as far as playing these shortened sets and not playing third sets and stuff like that. The USTA has to realize that we have a great country, but we have an entrepreneurial country. We have individually an driven, individually driven country, and the development of players and stuff should be left to the local pros, if somebody wants to go to a camp or something like that, finally. But local pros developing programs, and, and quite frankly, as you said, small towns, those are the places that the mentorships that is missing in tennis today can happen better because people know each other a little better and depend on each other a little more in a small town than they do in big cities. Very good. And stuff. So that's where mentoring could come back in would be in the small town situation and mentoring and and latching on to your coach and believing in your coach and making what your coach says work instead of looking for another coach if you lose. That's the thing that has to change. It, it, Very good. It, you have to Very learn – to accept responsibility for your losses and not, it's not your coach, but you have to find you a coach that you believe in and make his way work. You did things a different way than I did, Chuck. I did things a different way than you. Don Skakel did a different things than us. Jim Layton did different than us, but exactly good players. Good because we mentored the guys. And that has to go back into the junior tennis. It has to be mentored. It has to be mentoring. I, I say all the time, golf is now our last mentored sport in which the adults, adult golfers take the kids under their wings, play golf with them, the way people used to invite Sadry and Dylan and all those guys to play doubles with them at the club, they don't do that anymore. The mentoring, you have to, if you can't find people at the club that mentor you to play, you have to have a coach that becomes your mentor and you care about, I want this is the last thing I want to say on this, but Roger Federer was a pro. He was, won all the Grand Slam junior tournaments. He was won the Grand Slam in ITF juniors. He goes on the pro tour, he doesn't win a tournament for the first three years. And then what happens? The the guy that he was his coach passes away. And Roger becomes determined that he's not gonna that this guy felt that he should really be good and that he had not done as well as he should have done and so he starts dedicating himself in the memory of his coach to be better and that's what started his his the guy yeah. mentoring him that's and that's what ignited his Pete. heart. and the guy right. meant that meant that mentored Pete Sampras and changed him to the one hand backhand and and improved his serve that the, the well documented uh, the, the mentoring that, that uh, And that people. comes it's from bottom
1: It's not top down management. It's bottom up entrepreneurial right. spirit, folks. This United right. States of right. America, this is not Russia. It's not a socialist country yet. Hopefully it stays right. not. But this United States of America should be done bottom up and do it your and way. You find your pathway, not their their pathway it should be a free right. way freedom to do what right. you you need to do you need to do so
2: exactly and, and the, got, the the probably the highest profile coach in the world Nick Volatieri, he wasn't working for the USTA he started mentoring um, uh, Gottfried when he was a seventeen year old and he started living at his house. This is Brian Gottfried. Right. That was his first player. He started right. living with him. I had Larry, yep. his brother, who was a great player himself, tell me that he lost his brother when he was 14 because he was so dedicated. He went to live with Nick Volatieri in, in Puerto Rico, and then Nick came back to Florida and started the camp. Nick was a yep. mentor to these kids. He was a mentor. That's what's, that's what's missing. People don't realize that, but that's what's missing. Yeah. It's be not yourself. fancy methods. Get to yourself so, and learn how. And I want to say one other thing. Medvedev doesn't look like he should be a world number three player or two player, but he is. Ferrer, David Ferrer made $30 million for being his own player. Diego Schwarzman is five foot six, sold trinkets on the beach to be able to pay to go play. These are people that I admire, and I admire Federer because he changed everything he did, and he had talent, and when you have the talent and that stuff to go together, then you can change the world. But when these other people, that to me is the great thing about tennis, is there is no cookie cutter for who can be good. You just have to be determined to be your best and set your goals high, it's not a, a group of people. It's you. If you're in a group, you can take advantage of that group, but you are your own person, and you better find you somebody that you work with that believes in you and helps you get from one place to another and overcome the pitfalls of losing and get feeling down on yourself if you have somebody that believes in you, then they can take that hurt away a little bit or help help you find a way to come back at the thing that caused you the hurt of losing. So find you a mentor and work hard. It comes from individual effort and mentoring, not from this top-down stuff that we're getting, this socialistic approach to... to uh, to this sport. They, they're they not going to, USTA is going to give you nothing. They need to provide you with the pathway to take your talents to where, and your enjoyment. If you just enjoy it, enjoy it. If you have the talents, then you go to the top. But they need to provide a pathway and get out of telling everybody how they should do things because there's not one of them. That's ever done it. That are making these decisions now. They've they've got some people that are good coaches and stuff that have worked with them and stuff. But they need to be out having their own academy and mentoring, mentoring somebody, and and helping them out and not being you know, not being paid by the USTA. They need to have them a ment- mentor someone, or a two a two guys. Uh, I I I really believe that strongly, and it starts yeah. in the in the 10 and unders with the mentoring you you kids and parents find you somebody that your child enjoys being with that's that's motivated to help your son or your daughter and go with that you know accept let let your child accept the responsibility whether they make it or not on their own not because of what somebody told them uh I think you'd be way yep. better off in the in the long run. Well. J.W., I
1: cannot end the program without a better um, a summary that you've given and uh, a commentary there. And uh, we'll talk another time about college tennis, what happened with the old people playing, the pickleball value, the college and stuff. But to all you parents, uh, you've, you've, you've heard it right here today. You've heard everything right in this. You take this – Take this, and instead of anything fancy, take what has been told to you today by this great man and this great coach and great teacher of hundreds of kids, and this is what you do. Don't fall into that trap of uh, the fake book, hey, my kid's better than yours because I got to go do something you didn't and all that. So. JW, I cannot thank you enough. You're on record now, man. We 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 finally <laughs> got you. We finally got well, you. And, and and I look well, forward to me,
2: talking to you. Yeah, go ahead, give go ahead. I got off your own. And this, go, is, go. this is not a good this is not a good way to end, but I'm gonna say to the college coaches, hire Americans. Our yeah. kids have no place to go play. If they cut your program and you have no Americans in the programs or any parents to come and talk with the people to keep it going, then it's a travesty what's happened with our college uh, tennis, uh, with with all the uh, – our, our kids have no place to play. As John, none of our guys that played for me could even – a coach wouldn't even take them on a team today, and I had four All-Americans cool. off that one team. Nobody would even take them today. I agree. We got to do better. We got to do better.
1: This is American tennis. This is American tennis. Let's make American tennis great again. God bless you, J. W. Eisenhower. Thank you for being on this, Coach Chuck Creasy. We'll see you next week.